Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, let's go. Romans chapter 5 is where we left off last week, where we pick up this morning, particularly in verse 15, and we're going to finish Lord willing, Romans chapter 5 this morning. If you're new with us, we've been journeying through Paul's letter to the church at Rome, and we find ourselves midway through the fifth chapter. And we're just going to dive right in. And uh, if if you haven't been tracking with us up to this point, you're visiting today for the first time, you will get your bearings as as we work through this. I think that one of the great ills of our culture and generation and society is that we are people that are plagued by cynicism and pessimism. There's this kind of low-grade sense that things aren't really going to work out like we hope that they will. And as a result, we're just like perpetual I was going to say Cub fans, but they actually won the World Series last year. There's this sense that, ah, you know, things aren't quite ever going to be what I hoped them to be. I think the second half of Romans chapter 5, where we're going to pick up this morning, where we left off verse 15 through 21, is, is, is intended to be, amongst many other things, a kind of sledgehammer to the pessimism and the cynicism that still resides in our soul even after we come to hope in the gospel. So to that end, let me, let me read verses 15 through 21 and we're going to pray. And our, our plan this morning is to just work through this text like peeling back the layers of a gospel onion. And let's dive into it. So Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand this this text. Father, thank you for your, your word. It's breathed out by you, it's divine, it's inerrant, meaning it has no errors in it, it is infallible, meaning it is unable to be wrong, it is authoritative because it's from you and by your kind providence you have preserved it for us and you've allowed it to be translated faithfully into our language that we can understand what you are saying to the world and to your people. I pray that we would humble ourselves under your word 
and that it would expose us and nurture us, that it would wound and heal. I pray that you do these things for your glory and for the good of your people and for the salvation of any of those that you have set your love on that are here this morning that do not know you, that you are drawing to yourself. Lord, do it for these purposes. I pray, I plead with you. In Jesus' name, amen. So up to this point, just a a very brief summary, Paul has been arguing that all humanity is by nature sinful. And our sin, regardless of whether we were religious people or unreligious people, has alienated us from God. It has put us in a position where we are the right recipients of God's judgment. Earlier in Romans, Paul calls it the wrath of God. And then he argues that the good news of the gospel is, is that God does not leave mankind in that predicament, but he sends his son Jesus to be a sacrifice. The word he uses in Romans chapter 3 is a propitiation, a wrath-absorbing substitute to bear the wrath of God, the punishment of God, and extinguish it and absorb it and satisfy it, and then rise again in victory over sin, death, and the grave, so that all those that would have faith in Jesus, that would put their hope in Christ, in what He has done, may be reconciled, justified, adopted, saved, born again, His. And then He continues to say that even this faith that God is looking for is something that He gives. It's not something that we produce in ourselves. Even this faith is something that He gives. And then in chapter 5, He has been making the point, in particular in the second half of chapter 5, that all humanity really rests in one of two camps. Those that are in sin, that are dead in sin, represented by Adam, our first father, are those that have been made alive by God's sovereign grace, those that are in Christ. And that's what we looked at last week in verses 12, 13, and 14, that because of our first father, Adam, we are all born with a nature. And this is so, it's so clear. Anybody that wants to argue this point, I think, is, is, is uh, not really aware of reality. The most empirically verifiable fact in the universe is the inherent sinfulness of all peoples. I know this, not just because the Bible tells me this, because I have raised and am in the process of raising four children. Amen. It's ingrained in us. And Paul has made this point that those that are in Christ are dead in sin, and those that are in Christ are alive because of grace. And in verse 15 through 21, he's spelling out the consequences, the truth of that great good news. So let's just peel it back as we look at it. Let's look at verses 15 and 16 again. Paul says he's contrasting now Christ and Adam or salvation and being dead in sin. He says in verse 15 again, but the free gift, meaning salvation, is not like the trespass. Trespass, a word meaning sin, to trespass against God's holiness and His law. For... (coughs) For if many died through one man's trespass, remember as we looked last week, Adam has sinned and we have inherited his sin nature and we might be prone or or vulnerable to declare that that is not fair. How can we, even though we haven't even been born yet, how can we be guilty and suffer the consequences of Adam's actions? Well, if the point that we're going to see as we go through the rest of Romans chapter 5 is if that's our thinking, then, then we also have to say that it's unfair that we would receive grace from Jesus who is obedient. If we inherit Adam's disobedience and, and that's unfair, we also have to say that the gospel's unfair, that we inherit Christ's obedience. That's Paul's logic here. And so he says that for if many died through one man's trespass, meaning Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift, another comparison, I think in verse 16, he's just essentially saying the same thing, just in a different way. And the free gift of grace, of salvation, is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So he's contrasting. In many ways, 
Salvation, how salvation works, is much like how sin works. We receive the imputed sin of Adam, and also, by grace, we receive the imputed righteousness of Christ. But in verses 15 and 16, Paul is now contrasting, and he's saying, well, in a sense, it's not like it. So, so what is Paul saying here? Here's the question. How is the free gift of salvation not like the trespass? I think that there are, I think there are two options here, and we, we debated this a good bit this week with a group of guys in the office And what is Paul saying when he says that the free gift is not like the trespass? In particular, in verse 15. This is his answer. This is what he says, how it's not like. Salvation is not like sin or being dead in your sin. He says that just as many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So I think Paul is saying one of two things. One of two things in regards to how salvation is not like condemnation. One possibility is that Paul is saying, just follow the logic as we stare at this verse, he is saying that many more people will ultimately be saved than condemned. That's a possibility because maybe he's saying that much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And so he's saying that the free gift or salvation is not like condemnation because many more. It will abound for many more. In fact, this is what John Calvin thought, which was surprising to us. John Calvin, who sometimes we, with a great reformer of the Protestant Reformation, who I think articulated very well the sovereignty of God and salvation, which I think is clear and biblical and true, we sometimes equate to him a kind of pessimism, like, you know, God doesn't save a lot of people because he's sovereign and maybe maybe mean. But Calvin actually believed that that's what this verse is saying, that the contrast here is that many more people ultimately in the end will be saved than will not. Well, mark your calendars that on August 27th, 2017, I publicly disagreed with the great reformer John Calvin. I'm not so sure that that's what that verse is saying. I hope that's true. I certainly hope that's true. But I think the answer is the second possibility that Paul is saying that in a qualitative sense, not a quantity, not a number of people who are saved, but in a qualitative sense that the work of Christ, the work of God in redemption is much more powerful, much greater, much stronger than anything sin has wrought in this world. What God has done in saving cannot be compared to what sin has done in condemning. And the point of this text is to cause hope and confidence for the Christian life to arise in the Christian soul. I think that's ultimately what Paul is saying here. Now, I could be wrong and Calvin could be wrong, right? In fact, I hope that it's both. I hope that many people are saved. I hope that many more people on that day, that grace will abound for many quantitatively. And friends, let's be a church that prays to that end. Let's be sure that when we are considering God's sovereignty, to not put a negative spin on it. Am I making sense? That God is sovereign, but let's not, let's not automatically think that that means that it necessarily limits anything. God is rich in mercy, and His mercy is greater than our desire to see our unsaved loved ones come to Him. So let's not limit the grace of God. Let's pray with God-centered optimism because nothing is impossible for Him. Isaiah says that his arm is not too short and his ear is not dull that he cannot save. So let's be the type of church that just doesn't have a good historic theology, but lets that theology actually infuse us with a God-centeredness that doesn't wrongly limit God, but rather let it expand our hearts and infuse us with hope because we see a God in the Bible who is mighty to save. And His grace, there at the end of verse 15, abounds for many. 
Many. Many. Listen to what Paul or, uh, John, the disciple at the end in Revelation, as he's receiving this revelation from Jesus in Revelation 7, writes about his picture of eternity. Let this cause us to be filled with hope. Verse 9 of Revelation 7, he says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. A great multitude. Man, there's so much in this text. I mean, there's a great multitude from every nation. Nation there doesn't mean geopolitical entities like we think of nation now, like the United Nations. This word in the original language literally means people groups. Thousands and thousands of people groups, ethno-linguistic people groups, people from every tribe and tongue, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The point I think that Paul is making in verses 15 and 16 is that salvation is not like condemnation because salvation will be far more glorious than anything that damnation or condemnation has wrought in this earth. And that, as we stare at it, and as we live in a pessimistic age, should cause us to lean forward into the certain victory of God. But let's not just apply it sort of globally and universally. Maybe there's somebody in here that doesn't think it could possibly be true in their life. You know, you think, okay, grace, yeah, that, I get it. I see it. God is strong. But what about, what about my own life? You don't know what I have done. Be encouraged by the words of Charles Spurgeon on this. He says this, Ah, the bridge of grace will bear your weight, brother. Thousands of big sinners have gone across that bridge, yea, ten thousands, tens of thousands have gone over it. I can hear their trampings now as they traverse the great arches of the bridge of salvation. They come by their thousands, by their myriads, ere since the day when Christ first entered into his glory, they come, and yet never a stone has sprung in that mighty bridge. Some have been the chief of sinners, and some have come at the very last of their days, but the arch has never yielded beneath their weight. I will go with them, trusting to that same support. It will bear me over as it has borne them. Praise God. So is there anybody right now, let's just zero in. Is there anybody in here that is believing the lie that what you have done is unredeemable? Oh, friends, that is a lie straight from the pit of hell. Grace abounds. Salvation is not like condemnation. It's much more. It's stronger. How much more will the grace of God conquer every foe? And that's true in your life if you have ears to hear right now. Verse 17, let's continue. He says, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So again, what is he saying in verse 17? I think, I think really this whole passage, 15 through 21, Paul is making one grand, great central point. He's saying essentially the same thing that he said in verse 15 and 16, that there are those who are in Adam and death reigns in them and they will die. And there are those who are in Christ and life and grace and righteousness reigns in them and they will live. He's saying that there is a representative, a covenant head of all of humanity. We are either in Adam or we are in Christ. But here, he develops it a little further and introduces the idea that in each person, something reigns, R-E-I-G-N, something reigns, either death or grace. Look again at verse 17, he says, death reigned through that one man, but much more will those who receive grace and righteousness, will life reign in them through Jesus. And this should inform just our, our doctrine of humanity, what it means to be a person. All of us are mastered by something. We are all controlled by something. Every time that 
we choose sin, we are being influenced, mastered, dominated, subjugated by something. And people are either in Adam or they're in Christ. This doesn't mean that if you're a Christian you don't sin anymore, but, but there is this stark reality that Paul saw all peoples in. He saw sin as not being something that merely neutralizes us, but something that comes to reign and to dominate us and to put us into captivity. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2 about this reigning. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, according to the course of this world. So there's this prince, there's this enemy that is is putting us in this stream, this course of the world. And then at the end, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so in, in a kind of global cosmic sense, there's these two kingdoms that are fighting against one another. There is this kingdom of darkness which seeks to reign and then there is this kingdom of God which reigns over all things and reigns in our lives when we truly come to Jesus. Now one little point before we apply this personally, I think it's important as we look around a world that is, that is racked with evil and, and sin and, and people that are disobeying God right and left and we even see it in our own hearts we might be prone to the pessimism that I spoke about before, thinking that what happens in the end, is does good really triumph over evil? And the answer to that question is yes. Yes, these two kingdoms are at war with each other, but the outcome is certain. Listen to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. I love this when I'm down and when I am watching the news too much. I, I, I go to this verse. It helps me think about the future. And this verse in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, is speaking about the Antichrist at the end of the age and then talking about what his fate will be at the hands of Jesus. Actually, not even the hands of Jesus, just the breath of Jesus. Look at, look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. And then the lawless one, meaning the Antichrist, Satan, will be revealed, listen to this, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So, so that means that Jesus coughs on the devil and he's done. <coughs> Boom. If that's the case, that has magnificent ramifications for the war that still rages within my soul. Friends, stare at this. Come on. If you are a Christian, there is a sovereign reigning in your heart who promises that a day is coming when He will breathe and cause everything that is against you to cease from being. I know I say it a lot, but that should put steel in our spines, friends. Not, not just in a, a merely universal, theological, doctrinal sense, but, but where the rubber meets the road in my life, in your life, when we are battling with the residual reign of sin in our lives that has been conquered, but not yet fully and finally extinguished, we have a sovereign, a king in our heart who will cough on the devil in that day and he will be gone. And there is, the verse tells us there, an abundance, verse 17, and I think this is, this is just the theme of this text, an abundance, that there are those, meaning Christians, who will receive an abundance, an abundance, what a beautiful word, an abundance, 
abundance of grace and free righteousness. In other, means, in other words, it's a truckload of more than you need, and it's not something you ordered or merited. It's free. It's yours because God loved you, not because you were a worthy candidate, but because he loved you. <laughs> this word abundance is so powerful, and abundance more than enough. Some of us mope around constantly with a low-grade sense of unworthiness and residual feelings of condemnation. And if that's you today, friend, you need to feast. You need to bathe. You need to marinate in verse 17 that there is an abundance of grace and free righteousness for you because Christ reigns in you. He is not like a drill sergeant with a perpetually disappointed frown on his face because you can't do enough push-ups. That's not how the gospel works. He is able to save, and in fact he does, to the uttermost. Nobody, listen to this, nobody barely makes it into heaven. There's an abundance of grace. I've told you this story before, but my parents, we had a front door and a back door, which I guess most houses do. Uh, anyway, we had a little doggy door on our back door. And about a mile from where I grew up, there was this place called Mexico, where, um, you know, when we were teenagers, Sometimes, uh, if you, my children could stop listening for a moment, I don't want to encourage any of this behavior, but if we would sometimes go to Mexico <laughs> and, you know, go to Mexico. And, um, <laughs> and my brother and I, when we were sneaking back in sometimes, instead of coming through the front door, because, you know, my parents would be more apt to hear that, we would reach through the doggy door, unlock the back door, open it ever so quietly, close the door, and sneak up the steps into our bed. And I think, sadly, sometimes that's how some of us think we, we are in Christ, right? We don't, we, don't, we don't, nobody sneaks in, nobody barely makes it. Even the worst, the worst, the worst human that is saved has an abundance of grace. One of my favorite Puritan pastors was a man named Richard Sibbs who pastored in Cambridge in London back in the 1600s. And he said one of the most favorite things in his book, The Bruised Reed. It's one of my favorite quotes in church history. And he said, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. There's more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. And I, I agree with Richard Sibbs. And it's one of my favorite quotes. But as I stare at verse 17 and I see the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness that reigns in my life through Jesus Christ, I want to say to Richard Sibbs someday when I see him in heaven, that is a massive understatement. There's not just more more, there is abundantly more. Come on, add some adjectives to your stuff, Richard. Let's go. Come on. <laughs> and by the way, before we move on to verse 18, just as an aside, okay, how should this practically affect us in our day-to-day -day life? I, I think when we see this, I think this also should help us understand how grace actually works in our life, how God intends for grace to work. Not in a mechanical sense, but in a, in a kind of artistic, beautiful way. When we see how beautiful the gospel is, when we see how much hope there is, how much abundance, how much freedom there is in Christ, it should cause our hearts to be melted and it should cause us to look at this grace, and it becomes irresistible in a sense. It's so beautiful that you just have to have it. You're just drawn to it. And that, that's why I think this phrase in, in church history, the irresistible grace of God, I think that's what it means. 
But I think we misunderstand that as, as to a kind of forcing that God does into our lives, as if, as if he whacks us over the head and drags unwilling people to himself, and that's kind of how he works grace. No, no, no. He doesn't whack us. He woos us. Do you see this? When God awakens a soul, it's not like a formal transaction. It's he begins to put a taste, a distaste in our mouth for the reign of sin and a hunger in our gut for the reign of life and we are drawn slowly. It's the wooing of the Holy Spirit that we read about in John 6. It's a kind of beautiful beckoning and it becomes so beautiful, so altogether more lovely than anything that this world has to offer that we can't help but go to it and all of that behind the scenes, underneath the surface of our lives, is God making us new, regenerating, giving us a new heart, and then giving that heart desires that wants the very thing that he puts in front of us, which is his beautiful, irresistible, altogether abundant, free grace. So do you see? It's not a transaction. It's not a religious formula. It is a love story that God puts before us and it draws us to life. And then grace becomes more lovely, more preferable, actually more satisfying, more joy-bearing than anything that this reign of death has given us up to that point. Friends, that's, I think that's how we're to see this and to fight sin. And, and let me just pause and say that, like that may be happening to you right now. And, and you may not understand everything that I'm saying, but you're just like, wow, yeah, man, something, something, that, whatever that is, I don't quite know all the answers, but that just seems attractive, that notion, that truth that he's talking about. Friends, I think that's God by his Holy Spirit. It's like he's He's, he's, just, he's just laying down petals. Say, come, come, come with me. Come, come, come. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. So you see, what is this verse saying? Paul is giving us another summary. I think he's saying essentially the same thing. Evidently, because he says basically the same thing for several verses, Paul, or ultimately the Holy Spirit writing through Paul, really wants us to get this. Do you see that? He's essentially saying that we're either in Adam, and it leads to condemnation, or, it or we're in Christ, and it leads to justification. And just as Adam's sin led to the fall... Christ's obedience and righteousness and his act on the cross leads to right standing with God for all men. But, but something we need to handle here in verse 18, does this verse teach universalism? And what I mean by universalism is this, I think, erroneous idea that all people universally, meaning everybody that lives, is somehow saved. Because we might be tempted to think that. In verse Look at verse 18 again. He says, just as trespass leads to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So what does Paul mean by all men there? Does he actually literally mean in the second half of verse 18 that all people will be justified by Jesus? Well, I don't think that's what Paul is saying. And the reason I think that is because we want to read the Bible in context. I think clearly the answer is no. Paul is speaking in generalities here in verse 18. And so let's just even work in concentric circles outward. Even just one verse before in verse 17, Paul says, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace. So even just one verse before He's qualified what he means by all men in verse 18. It's not everybody, regardless of whether they trust in Christ or not. So not everybody is saved, even just one verse up in the context of this passage. 
Then the, the second concentric circle out is just the whole message of Romans up to this point. What we've read in Romans chapter 1 through 5, clearly he talks about a judgment, a wrath that will be poured out on people that do not trust in Christ. And so even if we just read up to this point, we realize that by all men in verse 18, he isn't speaking about all people are just automatically saved no matter where they are with Christ. And then the third concentric circle is just the rest of the Bible. The Bible does not disagree with itself. The rest of the Bible clearly teaches that there are only two people, those that are in Christ and out of Christ. So, so clearly, I think, just with just a quick look here, Paul is not advocating a universal aspect of salvation. He's speaking about those who are in Christ. But I think the point of this verse is that he's speaking about the certainty of the future. He's saying that sin is going somewhere. It's not static. It's active. It's taking people somewhere. And righteousness is not static. It's, it's active. It's leading us to life. It's taking us somewhere. Verse 19, he says this, For as by the one man's disobedience, oh, this verse, this verse, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience... Many will be made righteous. So again, Paul is, I think, saying the same thing. Are you, are you getting a theme here? Paul is repeating himself because he thinks we need to hear it more than once, right? I mean, some of you guys watched Titanic like 15 times back in the 90s. So we can be reminded of the most important truth in the universe a few times in one passage. He's saying that the disobedience of Adam, through it, many were made sinners. Remember, that's what we might have an objective to, uh, objection against, that how can that be fair? But then in the second half of verse 9, he says, by one man's obedience, meaning Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, the many will be made righteous. So let's stare at that phrase for just a moment because I think it's just absolutely the heart of the gospel. What does Paul mean by one man's obedience? The many will be made righteous. Understanding all that's embedded in that half sentence, I think, is, is just so important to a good understanding of the gospel. And to do that, let's just go to, to Hebrews chapter 2. And we're going to take a little journey through a few verses in Hebrews very quickly. This is what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus' obedience. So let's think about who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, fully God, not created, always existing, fully divine, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, no beginning, no end, the Alpha and the Omega, not created by the Father, but always existing, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And the plan of salvation is that God sent Jesus at a certain time, according to his plan of redemptive history, to become a man. And so Jesus, who's fully God, in fact, Colossians chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 1 says that Jesus created all that is. Jesus, fully God, becomes a man. And when he becomes a man, he does not stop being God. But he becomes fully man. That's a great mystery, isn't it? He's 100% God and 100% man. And God, according to his plan of redemption, intended to use the obedience of Jesus, the actual life of Jesus, as a 100% man to be part of the way that he actually makes us who are in Christ righteous. How does he do that? Hebrews chapter 2. Verse, where are my glasses at? Oh, here they are. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. Listen to this. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, clearly God, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Well, how can Jesus be made perfect if he's already perfect, the second person of the Trinity? Well, what I think the writer of Hebrews is referring to here is that God actually became man and Jesus actually had to experience his humanity and his suffering, his fighting against sin and his victorious victory over it in order to 
procure, to acquire our salvation. Verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name. Let me skip down to verse 14. Since therefore, verse 14, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, meaning Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the, the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, meaning us who have faith in him. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So Jesus, according to the eternal plan of God, had to become a man like us so that he would endure on our behalf where we have all failed in Adam. Human righteousness needed to be restored in Christ through his actual human life. And Jesus was completely obedient for us. Hebrews 4, verse 15, it says this, For we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, meaning one who goes for us to the the Lord, the high priest. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So Jesus actually, as a human, obeyed where Adam and all of us have disobeyed. Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. How can Jesus learn anything? He is the eternal Son of God who created everything. What is that verse in Hebrews saying? Think about the majesty of that truth. That the eternal Creator, Son of God, still 100% God, laid aside, didn't stop being, but laid aside during His incarnation and became fully human, And then through his real humanity, actually became, acquired, actually lived his obedience. He learned, he became, he he did, he accomplished his obedience in a real life so that his perfect humanity would be substituted for Adam and our imperfect humanity. Do you see that? And so what happens on the cross then is that God is restoring humanity to righteousness. And that's what the second half of verse 19 is saying, that through Adam we've disobeyed, but through Christ who obeyed, we now are made righteous. So, So how does salvation work? It's not God shaking an etch-a-sketch and saying, man, things are bad down there. So let's just, let me just wave my magic wand and make things better. It's Jesus becoming a man, living the life that we could not live. And then think about this. Think about this. Friends, don't, don't, don't miss this. Don't, don't, be, don't, don't miss the beauty of this truth because in our battle against sin, this is so important. What Paul is saying is that just as Adam's disobedience is credited to us, Christ's actual, real obedience is credited to those that are in Him. Friends, the implications of that truth are stunning. That means that if you are in Christ, Christ's obedience is credited to your account. 
And what effect should that have on you? If you are really a Christian, that should not cause you to fall back into spiritual laziness and sin, but it should actually propel in you a desire to become who you already are credited for in Christ. In fact, that's the point of Hebrews 10, verse 14. Paul said, or the writer of Hebrews says this, that by a single offering, meaning his work, life, death, resurrection, by a single offering, he has perfected, past tense, credited all of his obedience to those that are in him. He has perfected those who are being sanctified. Now, you know, if you've been around, that this verse mesmerizes me, right? This is because my mom was an English teacher, and this is sort of grammatically impossible. And so if we were grading Paul's homework, we would mark this, or whoever wrote Hebrews, we would mark this with red and say, that's not possible. You're mixing two tenses. They have been perfected, but they're being sanctified, except the author of this sentence is the Holy Spirit. And nobody marks his stuff with red. Do you see this? Christian, do you see this? This is how God intends for grace to reign in our lives. It's a kind of already not yet. He says, this is how I see you. With the obedience of the perfect man, Jesus. Now it's yours. It's been imputed to you live in that truth. Do you see that? Friends, that's how you fight sin. That's how, we, that's how we take God's side against our sin and we take the sword of the Spirit as we'll get to in Romans 8 and we slay our sin because grace is so beautiful, it's so abundant, it's so free. And if we're in Christ, it's already true. So we are fighting a that we know we're going to win. And we are fighting a battle that is so much more satisfying than what we have been doing up to that point. Do you see that? Oh, I, 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 I need this truth in my fight with sin. And I think you do too. Let's end with this, verses 20 and 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. These are sweet words, but where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He summarizes again with this idea that death is reigning, but grace reigns all the more. In verse 20, so encouraging, he says that the law came in to increase the trespass. I don't think that means that when the law came through Moses, you know, after people had lived for hundreds and hundreds of years, that all of a sudden there was more sin around. I don't think that's what that means. I think that the increase there is that now we, we realize we, the law, God's law, is kind of like a light. We were kind of walking around, even though we were by nature sinners, we were walking around in darkness. God gives his law. It's like a light that flips on in the room, and we realize, oh my gosh, Look at all this sin. Look at, we, we are transgressing God's way. And so I think that's what it means that sin increases because of the law. But then the good news of the second half of verse 20 is, is that where, where sin is increased, when we realize how actually bad off we are when we stare at God's word, the good news is that grace abounds all the more. This makes me think, think of the strange paradox of growing in grace as a Christian. Think of it this way. like When you first are born again and saved and made new by God, and think of this spectrum. At the very top is God's righteousness, and at the very bottom is our wretched sin. And at the moment of salvation, the moment that God opens our eyes and gives us a new heart, we have some understanding of that spectrum, but it's very small. And as we begin to grow in Christ, we see as we grow in the understanding of God's law, which, which I think in a sense is the whole Bible, we see actually how beautiful and good God is and our view of God increases. And likewise, 
our, our view of ourself actually decreases. We realize, oh my gosh, I wasn't just a good guy that God helped out. I, I was actually headed for condemnation and God saved me. And so this strange kind of paradox happens is that as we grow in grace, sometimes we actually feel worse about ourselves. Does anybody else, has anybody else felt this, this kind of strange dilemma? And, and what's going on there? I think that that clearly is intended by God because part of the way that grace reigns in our life is to make us more and more and more aware of our utter dependence on Him. That's what God intends. God intends for our growth to drive us deeper and deeper into humility and away from ourselves. Not into a woe's me, which is a sort of reverse self-absorption and a kind of pride, but into a deeper humility as we see that grace abounds. The abundance of grace is the glorious truth of the gospel. I'm going to pray. The band is going to come lead us in a song. And we're going to see a young man from this church be baptized. His name is Stephen Clayton. He is a music, was a music student at CSU. He just graduated. He was a trombone major. There's something about trombone. We've got a bunch of trombonists in this congregation. There's like a little revival of trombonists going on at CSU. And Stephen is headed to Winnipeg, Canada, where he's going to be playing in an orchestra. Today's his last Sunday at Crosspoint. He's been a member for uh, this last year. And we're going to see in Stephen's baptism, as we're going to see this truth pictured before us, that those that are in Adam are dead. And Jesus died for us. And we go down into the water because we are going down into death with Jesus who died for us. But he raises us up into the newness of life. And now his life, his grace, his righteousness reigns in us. And that is the Christian life. Let's pray. Father God, seal these glorious truths in our hearts. Help them help us fight sin, that grace, an abundance of grace, and the free gift of righteousness might reign in us. And by your sovereign power, Lord, call any that are still dead in Adam. Call them, make them alive in Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.